Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Environment Minister Kathleen McKenna is in town to support local climate initiatives. Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott also joined us to discuss the plan to transform Ontario's health care system, to which NDP leader Andrea Horvath responds. Also, a piece in the Globe and Mail today says that Canada has threatened to not ratify the USMCA agreement until the U.S. lifts their steel and aluminum tariffs. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, since we have a snow day, it's as good a day as any to talk about climate change and the impact that that's having. Uh, the uh, Minister for the Environment for the Federal Government, Catherine McKenna, is in town today to support local climate initiatives uh, actually around the area. She's going to be at four or five different locations, I'm told. Uh, she's going to announce support to help farmers team and develop solutions to adopt to climate change. Uh, to give us some insight into this, we are pleased to welcome the Minister of Environment and Climate Change for the federal government, uh, the Honorable Catherine McKenna, joins us once again on the Bill Kelly Show. Minister, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Bill, it's always good to be on your show. As you know, I'm a proud Hamiltonian. You are. Just uh, grew up and went to school just a few blocks from here in the west end of the city, and uh, always good to get back. Uh, and as I mentioned in the preamble, Minister, uh, uh, this is a great, uh, this, everybody said it's a snow day, but I mean, if you want to talk about climate change, this is an example of it. We have extreme weather. This is the fourth snow day we've had here in the Hamilton area in the last little while. Uh, it's having an impact on us. It has an impact on our lives, on our kids at school, but it has an impact on agriculture too, doesn't it? Uh, it absolutely does. So before I start, I should do a little shout out because I know everyone's trying to figure out the traffic and how to get around in the snow. We have a new weather app, Environment and Climate Change Canada. Radar five to- four times better uh, than anything else you can find, and it has uh, it has extreme weather warnings. We're very lucky to have very good meteorologists. Um, but yeah, look, climate change is having a huge impact. Whether it's more extreme weather, um, you know, snow uh, storms. Uh, we've seen extreme heat, droughts, flooding, and, of course, forest fires out west. I mean, it's having a real impact. And if you're a farmer, that's something you need to be thinking about because as you go in the future, you're planting your crops, you can have your crops wiped out in a whole season if you have too much rain or you don't have uh, enough. And so um, it's great. We're partnering with all sorts of folks, including farmers. So today I'm making an announcement that we're partnering with the National Farmers Union. Um, and the, the plan is to help support them. They're doing kitchen tables, uh, the round tables, so they're going to go around and talk about climate change, talk about the impacts, what it means for farmers, and, of course, how can farmers be part of the solution. Well, and, and this, is, this is an interesting idea, and, and this, because the debate, once again, and you and I have talked about this in the past, uh, about, about climate change and about the earth heating up, and I know there's still some skeptics, uh, some of them in very high places in government uh, here in North America, uh, and that's got to be a problem. Uh, but the other area that I wanted to get your read on, if I could, is uh, the the I think the misunderstanding an awful lot of people have when they say, "Well, boy, if the Earth's warming, how come we're getting cold weather like this?" Uh, and that's the difference between climate and weather. And uh, what we had today with that white stuff coming down is weather. That's not climate. Uh, and your concern, obviously, with climate and the implications that that changing climate is having. Yeah, I mean, so just to make it in a really easy way, if you if you look at climate, those are, it's long-term trends. So there's no doubt that the long-term trend is the, the, the planet is warming. Um, and that's as, as a result uh, of, uh, you know, pollution, um, which is why we are putting a, pl- a price on pollution, giving money back to folks in Ontario when they file their taxes. taxes. Um, and But you will see extreme weather. And so weather is often how people ex- kind of experience climate. So you will see more storms. Um, you will see more droughts. 
Um, people really felt the heat this summer. People literally died uh, of extreme heat. And so you're going to see kind of wacky weather. But, of course, the long-term trend is that the planet is heating. And so it's a problem on two fronts. I mean, obviously, as the planet warms, that has huge impacts. When the ocean warms, um, that has impacts. The, you, know, the, you know, the polar uh, ice caps melting has impacts. Um, as I say, that, that you're going to see more droughts, um, extreme temp- heat. But also you're going to have this wacky weather, which makes it very hard for planning. And that's why we need to act. And, and as I say, like, we know what the problem is. The problem is too much carbon pollution. And we know what the solutions are, um, you know, making it no longer free to pollute. But also uh, making investments um, in, for example, energy efficient buildings. One of the big an- announcements that we made, and I was very proud that the, the federal government was a partner, uh, was with Mohawk College the new Joy Center for Partnership and Innovation. Uh, we made a $20 million federal investment. That's the largest federal investment in Mohawk College, and it's the largest net zero facility. So you can build a lot better um, and reduce emissions. And, of course, students want to be seeing action on climate change. They've always grown up with the threat of climate change. I know many of them are extremely worried. Will we take action? Um, so there's ways to move forward. I mean, unfortunately, though, as you said, there are some people... Uh, and fortunately, in the case of Canada, conservative politicians who don't seem to believe that climate change is real and having a real impact. So they're cutting programs. And it's actually really hurt Hamilton because they cut $2 million. The Ford government cut $2 million for electric buses in Hamilton. They cut money for Mohawk's new Center for Climate Change Management. If you can imagine, that's to help the city uh, understand the impacts, the long-term impacts of climate change. They caught $2.1 million for school renovations to be more energy efficient. And we need to be doing more, not less. How difficult is it, though, for your government to try to carry through with some of these initiatives uh, when you've got, well, let's face it, the, 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 this government here in Ontario right now, plus Saskatchewan and, and some, some rumblings from some others right now, uh, that, that seem to turn their back on what most of the rest of the world is already acknowledging and is moving towards, uh, yet, you know, they, they seem to want to bring 19th century solutions to the problem. Yeah, I mean, they want to make it free to pollute. They seem to be okay with more pollution. Um, look, it's actually not dissimilar to what happened with the Trump administration in the U.S. You know, they decided that they were going to step back and go back in time on climate action, and we worked with states. I'm working, we're working right now with states representing almost 50% of the U.S. population. We're working with U.S. businesses. We're working with U.S. cities. It's actually the exact same thing, and it's a good lesson to have learned for Ontario. That's why we're working with farmers. We're working like with cities like Hamilton, like Burlington. We're working uh, with businesses, businesses who want to be more energy efficient because it also helps them save money. Um, and, of course, we're working with Ontarians. And so everyone, I know everyone's thinking about their taxes. When you file your taxes, uh, a family of four will get a climate action incentive rebate of $307, which, much, which is more than 8 out of 10 families will pay. And you can save more money if you invest in energy efficiency measures, which can be a little more insulation, taking public transit, um, using uh, a smart meter in your home. So I think there's a real opportunity to work together, and that's always been my goal, uh, is to figure out how do we work together to solve the biggest challenge we face, but do it in a way that makes life affordable and also creates huge job opportunities, because we know the economies of the future that are going to succeed 
are the ones that have the clean solutions. And we see businesses across the board, including in Hamilton, all across Ontario, that have clean solutions that people need, that the world needs. Let's talk about the people that actually make their living with the land, uh, and, and that's that agricultural business. And I know you're well aware, but it's just maybe to remind our listeners, uh, the agri-food business here in Hamilton alone is over a billion dollars annually. I mean, it's incredible how much uh, of that economy is actually dedicated towards agri-food. And, of course, the, we can talk about Niagara to a great extent, and, and I know you're going to be touring through the Burlington area, the other side of the bay here as well. Uh, how how is the agricultural community dealing with this and looking for solutions? Because we hear the stories anecdotally, Minister, but uh, as you say, uh, you know, extreme temperatures. We've had you know some great freezing temperatures, you know, record lows in some cases, which is threatening. For instance, the ice wine industry down in Niagara. It's had an impact on on a number of crops here. Uh, the fact that we've had extended winters in some situations like this is having problems with, tra- with the planting in the summer times and, and in the springtime. Uh, what, what, you know, you've got a fund that's been set up, and I know you wanted to talk about the Climate Action Fund. How can you apply that, that fund, that idea, to what's going on here? Well, I mean, so as I say, I mean, first of all, is getting people to understand the challenge and how do we, how do we tackle it. So as I said, with the National Farmers Union, working directly with farmers, who are going to reach out, and these are small and medium-sized farmers uh, that'll, you know, be reaching out, talking about climate change, and and understanding the solutions. And we also, with Environment and Climate Change Canada, we have a new climate services center where we can provide long-term projections, which are really important, um, and so that you can kind of understand, okay, what is going to be the temperature changes? The extreme weather is harder to to understand. And I was in Niagara, actually, not so long ago. Um, I mean, it seems long ago now because it was last summer. But, uh, I mean, I was at a vineyard, and they were talking about there are, more, there are some opportunities as it warms up in the shorter term. But the real concern about, you know, when you're going um, to have freezing, when you're, you're not, what, you know, how long the season is, are you going to have, you know, more rain, uh, it's gonna be, or is it going to be drier, that has a real impact on people has a real impact on food and has a real economic impact. Because as you said, so much uh, of the economy in the area is, relies on agriculture. So definitely farmers, you know, want to be part of the solution, and they already are. So we've seen, like, really great advances in zero-till agriculture, um, in, you know, reducing the fertilizer, the water use. And so they have the solutions, and we certainly want to be continuing to partner with them because it's extraordinarily important for our economy. It's extraordinarily important for our environment and also to ensure that the farmers are able to thrive. Well, because there's been a change, I think, in, in dynamics, and maybe that's a consumer-driven change, uh, there's, as as we've seen, I mean, all you need to do is, is look in the, your, your local grocery store right now. I think there's a there's a real move now towards earth-to-table uh, when it comes to agriculture. In other words, you want stuff that's locally grown, not just grown in this country, but grown in this area. Uh, I mean, you know, when we go to the produce section, I don't want to buy something from Mexico. I want to buy something that was that was grown here in Canada. Uh, but if we're going to have these sorts of, of weird, you know, variations because of the climate and the situations like this, it, it really puts that, that crop in peril. Well, absolutely. And that's what we need to protect again. And that's why, you know, we need to be smart in the short term, but we really need to be smart in the longer term. Um, we can find solutions. We know what the problem is, I said, and that's why... We've got to work across the board, whether it's making it no longer free to pollute, putting more money in people's pockets so they can make decisions to be more efficient, um, energy efficient, whether it's 
building more efficient buildings, whether it is, I mean, we have to adapt to the impacts of climate change, so we need to support that. Um, cities are on the front lines when there are floods um, or extreme heat and people are dying. I mean, it's really cities that have to respond. And so you have to have an across-the-board approach. And, I like, look, climate change and climate action should not be a partisan issue. It's not, whether or not you're, where you are in the political spectrum, it's still going to have an impact. Whether you live in the high Arctic or you live in downtown Hamilton, it's still going to have an impact. So we need to be smart, and it's going to be so much cheaper to act now as opposed to later. And of course, you know, if we don't act, who's really going to pay the price? The next generation. Or this one. I mean, it's already started to happen. I mean, you, you, I know you're well aware of the stories that we have. Well, they used to call them 100-year storms uh, because they were so yeah. severe that they only happened about 100 years. Well, we get about four or five of them every summer now, and it's caused flooding anyway. in the East End and Red Hill. It's in your old neighborhood in the West End, and the Shadoak watershed, it's caused flooding as well. So, I mean, it's, it's having an impact right now. It absolutely is having an impact. I should point out something else that we invested in, which I know a lot of people love the Royal Botanical Gardens. Um, we've I- invested in wetlands rehabilitation. Wetlands are extremely important when you talk about flooding. They have a really important role that you restore the habitat there. So there's all these investments that we can do together, and that's my goal. Um, of course, I mean, I love when I get to make announcements in Hamilton or you know support projects in Hamilton because I, I love Hamilton. I was actually out last night on King William Street. I was really amazed that Pretty, it's pretty great there with it all is. the different restaurants. Um, but, look, we need to have thriving cities and communities. We need to make sure that we're protecting. Often, often it's the most vulnerable that are impacted um, with floods, but also extreme heat because people are living in houses where, or, you know, boarding houses or in a combination that doesn't have air conditioning. So that's really hard. Um, and we can do better. Like when you talk about the city, you know, wanting to use more electric buses. I mean, why not? That makes sense because... One is, you know, you're eliminating the pollution, but two, when you look at the life cycle cost of running those buses, it's cheaper. So, as I say, this is the goal. I'm just a practical person. Um, The goal is really how do you find solutions uh, that work, that make life affordable, that are going to create good jobs, and also are going to make sure we do what we need to do to tackle climate change. Yeah, the uh, the bus things are kind of a sore point with the city here, obviously, because the money that was earmarked for that was canceled by the Ford government when they uh, killed the cap and trade program. But uh, that's, I guess, that's old news. But nonetheless, uh, they're dealing with it now in the budget cycle here in Hamilton. Uh, we're just about out of time. There's a lot more that we could cover, but for people that want to get more information about this, uh, we should mention that you and uh, your fellow cabinet minister uh, Karina Gold are having a town hall later on this afternoon, right? Well, we were, but sadly, oh, you canceled it now. The weather, we're postponing it. So good news, everyone will have more time. But I mean, we need people to get home safely. And I looked at our weather app, and it was looking wasn't looking very good. And so we don't want people uh, to come out at their peril. So we're gonna we're gonna re uh, we're gonna definitely host it again. Uh, Minister Gould very keen to host it. So everyone should stay tuned. We'll publicize it. And I really want to hear from folks. I want to hear from po- folks that want to see more climate action. I want to hear from folks that are concerned. Is this going to, you know, cost more? Because um, I think we really need to talk these through in a, you know, in a sensible way and, and figure out what are the real solutions and what are the opportunities. And I think there's huge opportunities, um, you know, to build more sustainable cities that are more livable, where there's less pollution, where you have more opportunities to get around in a cleaner, cheaper, faster way, where we build our houses and our buildings better. So I'm excited, always happy to be in the Hamilton area. Well, uh, we'll get you next time when you come in here, too, when you do have that uh, that town hall, and we'll uh, maybe get you down here in studio and talk more. Minister, thanks so much for the time today. Always a pleasure. 
Always a pleasure, Bill. Thanks. Take care. That's uh, Catherine McKenna, of course, uh, the uh, Minister of Environment and Climate Change. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus uh, for the next few minutes uh, about the health care announcement made by the provincial government yesterday. Uh, this is uh, the much-anticipated announcement, of course, uh, because uh, there was a leaked document a few weeks ago that uh, the NDP at that time suggested was the template for the system. We uh, talked to the minister, uh, Christine Elliott, at that time, and she said, no, that's, that's old and irrelevant. And yesterday she did roll out uh, exactly where the government and how the government is going to proceed. And uh, to get some clarity on that, we are pleased to welcome back to the program the uh, Minister of Health for the Ontario Government, the Honourable Christine Elliott. Minister, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us on a busy day today. A pleasure. Good morning, Bill. Good morning to you. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about what you uh, outlined yesterday, if we could. Uh, and and uh, we knew that the system needed uh, some changing, uh, some radical changes, I guess, in some people's minds. Uh, the, the rollout uh, includes, a, a, I hate to use this word that uh, because it haunts many people, politicians, a kind of an amalgamation uh, of a number of different health care services into what you call Ontario Health. Explain exactly why. Well, we came to the same conclusion as many people have that just a small changes around the edges of our health care system was not going to achieve the change that we need to strengthen our public health care system, that we need a transformational change that is going to center uh, care squarely on patients and provide integrated care for them as they have their health care journey through the different transitions from hospital to home care, for example, for hospital to long-term care. Right now, that care is very fragmented. The providers are funded in, in silos, often with contradictory aims. We want everyone in health care, all of the providers, to be able to concentrate on the patient and the patient's needs and making sure that patients get that connected care every step along the way. Uh, and Which is a, a goal that I think everybody would agree with. Uh, obviously, it needs to be patient-centric, and I know you've done an awful lot of work in that over the last few years. But how does this system encourage that? I mean, uh, it's, are you centralizing or decentralizing healthcare delivery? What we're doing is, uh, is creating the agency, Ontario Health, that will be responsible for um, the uh, organizing health care across the province to make sure that people in northwestern Ontario will receive excellent quality health care and not necessarily exactly the same way because there are regional differences, but will receive uh, excellent quality care that people in Toronto will receive or Ottawa. That coordination function will be and uh, the responsibility of Ontario Health. They will then receive applications from local health care providers who will then apply to become the uh, local Ontario health team. And if they meet the criteria that is being developed, then they will be the ones that will be both fiscally responsible and responsible for care coordination in that geographic area. So, so, the, so there, are, there are going to be regional uh, councils then too. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, well, there will be uh, five regional parts uh, to the Ontario Health, the, the uh, provincial agency, but then the care is actually going to be delivered by local health care providers. And they are, uh, many people are very um, happy about that. The care providers want to be able to provide coordinated care, but the system, the way it's set up right now, doesn't allow for that. 
So we want to remove those silos and allow those providers to come together to provide the care they want to provide to their patients. But but what you're suggesting, I understand, excuse me, what you're suggesting here, in other words, you're going to get input and hopefully some direction on how that care is going to be delivered at the local level from these these local boards. Is, Is that not the same as the Lynn, just a different name? No, no, they will actually be providing that care. And they are the local providers. They're the ones that are on the front line. They know. So, for example, you might have a situation where uh, a hospital, a home care provider, and perhaps a mental health agency might uh, come together and say, we want to make an application to become the uh, local Ontario health team. They will put a plan together. They will have to uh, satisfy Ontario Health, the agency, that they are able to provide that service. And then they will be the ones that will be responsible locally as local care providers themselves to be able to deliver that service with all of their care partners. So bring everybody in that delivers health care in that geographic area and make sure that that care is centered around the patient and is integrated to provide that kind of continuous care, coordinated care that patients expect and deserve. So so we've got two different levels here, and I understand that. But uh, the, the super board, is, as some people have claimed, uh, uh, you know, the, that's, that's, I guess, what it's going to be dubbed in some people's minds anyway, that, that's called Ontario Health, uh, is, yeah. is obviously going to centralize an awful lot of the, the administrative end of this thing. How does that impact staffing? Are, are people going to lose their jobs as a result of this? We... Um, we anticipate that um, as a result of the change in structure, some people may move around and perform perhaps some different functions, but we want to put as many resources as possible into the front line. And many of the people that are already there in the LINs, for example, the, who, who provide home care will still be necessary to provide home care. That's not going to change. The structure will because we want to focus the structure on patients and patient care. But Many of the people will still be necessary. Many or all? Because, I mean, I'm, I, and I'm going back, it wasn't your promise, in, in fairness, Minister, yeah. but it was the Premier's promise at the time of the election that uh, j- during these cost efficiency exercises that uh, your government was going to undertake, that nobody was going to lose their job. And uh, there's a concern, and I, mean, I know you've heard it over the last 24 hours, and I wanted you to comment on it here. Are people going to lose their jobs? Are some people going to lose their jobs as a result of this reorganization? Well, as I said before, we are focusing on providing um, more resources for frontline care, and that's what we're concentrating on with this. There will still be people that are necessary for all of the functions that are going to be um, dealt with here, but I think it's premature to say exactly what's going to happen because it's going to be up to the local Health Ontario teams to provide their plan for service and submit it to the agency. So that determination will be up to the local care providers uh, who will form the local Ontario health teams. In this reorganization, are, are, are there some facilities that are going to close as a result of this? I mean, I understand that you're saying you're going to get input from these local agencies, but, but you know, we've, yeah. we've gone down this road before, and, and we've had hospital closures in, in some instances, and, and that's, that's frightening to an awful lot of people that are looking for that kind of care. No, we are not looking at hospital closures at all. But if it's recommended from one of these uh, the sub-agencies that you're talking about, does the government entertain that idea? Uh, we don't anticipate that's going to happen because uh, the, we ex- expect that many of the hospitals will become part of the local Ontario health teams. They are anxious 
to uh, to connect. We have uh, received uh, great support from the Ontario Hospital Association. Uh, we want to work with them, and we want to make sure that they are a central part of coordinating the care for patients. When is the, They're uh, one of the biggest providers of care. Minister, when's the uh, legislation actually going to be introduced? Obviously, there's a process once it gets into the legislature. Uh, I introduced it yesterday okay. in the legislature, and so it will work its way through in the normal course. I'm sure we are going to have uh, a, a vigorous debate about it, but um, at the end of the day, this transformation, uh, in my view, is necessary. Um, people from across Ontario during my time as uh, the opposition health critic uh, for a number of years, as Ontario's first patient ombudsman, and now as Minister of Health and Long-Term Care, they have told me we need this transformation, that the status quo is not acceptable, that we need this change. And so it's the right thing to do, and we are going to uh, to move forward with it, respecting, of course, the legislature and the legislative requirements. And as that process unfolds uh, through the legis- legislative process, Minister, there's a, there's a long list of stakeholders. You mentioned the Ontario Hospital Association. There's many, many more, as you know. Uh, are they going to have an opportunity to weigh in on this? Of course they will, yes. Once this matter, they've, I've already spoken with a number of them, a number of them. I've consulted with them. We um, already have a number of groups that are supportive, but of course they will have the opportunity now that the legislation has been uh, introduced to, um, if they have issues, to appear before committee when the matter gets to committee. Uh, we welcome the um, opportunity to um, to uh, consider any uh, legislative changes because what we want to do is the right thing for patients and families to make sure that we focus squarely on them with this uh, legislation and make sure that uh, patients, families, and caregivers are at the center of everything we do and that we what results is better coordinated care within our public health care system that people will continue to pay for services with their OHIP card as they always have. Busy day for us and uh, it's going to be a rather interesting debate over the next little while for this minister. Appreciate you taking the time for us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Minister of Health Christine Elliott. Uh, I want to bring uh, the leader of the opposition uh, at Queen's Park, uh, Andrea Horvath, of course, leader of the Ontario NDP Party, into the conversation now. Andrea, thanks for uh, jumping in. Uh, you've heard the comments. I know you listened to the minister yesterday in the legislature about this, too. Uh, it, it seems to me, and this is just my read on this, I haven't read the legislation, I'm just reading the overview on this, as if they simply blown up one administrative system and replaced it with their own under a different name. Sure, and, and what they've done is they've they've centralized everything into this BMS called Ontario Health, taking some agencies that are frankly world renowned in terms of the you know the uh, the services that they provide, and I think of things like um, Cancer Care Ontario for za- for example, the uh, the the Trillium um, uh, Gift of Life uh, network. I mean, these things are 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 working well for patients. Uh, and for families, why would you, you know, why would you dissolve them into this big bureaucracy uh, that uh, that is now, you know, going to make decisions uh, and and uh, funding allocations based on the requests of these local Ontario health teams? Um, again, sucked into this central, this central huge mega bureaucracy. Uh, and I can tell you for sure, if I was living in northern Ontario or or in rural Ontario, small town Ontario, I'd be pretty worried. Uh, about uh, about how that this is going to impact my access to healthcare, and we all know already that those those parts of our province uh, suffer suffer from a lack of equitable 
access to health care. So it's very, very worrisome. And, you know, it's interesting because they're doing, they're kind of taking on a similar model as what was put, put in place in Alberta, which, was, which has failed. And, in fact, Alberta is reversing uh, the failed model that the Conservatives put in place in that province. And yet here in Ontario, the biggest province in our country, uh, they're, they're adopting this Conservative model from Alberta that has failed the people of Alberta. And, you know, again, the, the, gov- the, the um, minister likes to gloss over uh, the transition, uh, but we haven't seen a very sensitive transition, for example, on the autism file. Uh, so if that's any indicator of how this government deals with transitioning from one system to another, we're in for a rocky road, and it's people's access to health care and their, their access to quality health care in a timely fashion that, uh, that I'm very concerned about. As I, as I went over this stuff last night in preparation for the show today, uh, one of the things that d- d- kept jumping out at me here was, and I, I heard the minister's comments, and you, she just repeated them today, that this is all you know, about the patient, and, and that's wonderful. That's everybody's goal, I think, for an, an effective health care system. But we already know that uh, you know, to end the, well, the phrase they used all through the election, you know, hallway medicine, uh, is going to take a huge investment of money and, and personnel to do that. It means Absolutely. more money for long-term care. It means more money for hospice care, more money for at-home care. Yep. Uh, I don't see that in, in what they're rolling out here. I see another great big administration uh, move here, uh, but I don't see that kind of money. They keep talking about frontline services, but I don't see it happening on front lines. No, I'm, I'm pretty worried about it too, Bill. And uh, In fact, uh, the um, Ontario Nurses Association has come out pretty concerned as well. Uh, I mean, we know that uh, we don't have enough, you know, personal support workers in our province that are prepared to do that job in long-term care and in home care because it's, it's frankly, an underpaid and uh, uh, under-respected job. I mean, we, we have people graduating from uh, programs at college that, that don't even go into the field because they have to get two or three part-time positions in three different nursing homes to be able to cobble together a, cobble together a living. And in each of those homes, it's very stressful because they're all understaffed. None of that is being talked about. But the other thing that's really, really worrisome, and I don't know if you picked it up in your review of the uh, legislation that was tabled, but there's a new preamble. So new, I mean different from the one that was uh, initially uh, uncovered when we leaked the draft bill. By the way, this bill is very... This bill, Bill, sorry, <laughs> this bill is very much uh, similar. I mean, they're, they're, they've tweaked a couple of little spots, but really the worries we have about privatization continue to be there. And the minister is, is, is like mixing the words around to try to confuse people. But being able to pay for services with your OHIP card does not prevent privatization from occurring. It's, the, it's who's providing that service. And if it's for-profit privatized companies that are providing that service, that's privatization in our healthcare system. And in the preamble, what they do is they they change the the reference uh, to fu- the, and it, it, it speaks particularly to public funding, but doesn't mention at all the principle that comes straight from our Canada Health Act of public not-for-profit delivery of health services. That has been skipped. That's been, that's been skipped out of this legislation completely. And that's where we see the big loophole uh, allowing Mr. Ford and the Conservatives to do what they always do, and that's privatize, privatize, privatize. In fact, that was the other promise that he made during the campaign and that he made when he was running for leader of his party. He was going to leave no stone unturned to find uh, opportunities to privatize public services, and that means our 
precious health dollars instead of going every single penny into the frontline care uh, for, for everyday families and, and patients that need it is going to go to pad the profit margins of private companies, which is the wrong thing to do. All right, we're just about out of time, but I guess uh, one final point is we've been there, done that before. I mean, this sounds very similar to, to what the Harris government tried to do. And, oh, I, right. I, I, and I understand the minister twice now has said that, uh, you know what, we're not anticipating any closures, we're not anticipating any job losses, or she says don't anticipate. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen. But the way the Harris government did this is they dried up the funding sources so that the local boards were the ones that had to make the decision, and they just put their hands up and said, it wasn't us. Well, yeah, it was, because the, the money that should have been put into that program wasn't put into that program. I'm afraid we may see a repeat of that. I'm afraid so, too. And, in fact, it sounds to me that that's exactly what the, the minister described when you asked her that question a few minutes ago. She described exactly that scenario. Well, she wasn't anticipating any local agencies closing, but, of course, that will be the decision of the uh, local health teams. And those local health teams will make that decision based on, based on community needs. So then what happens to specialized services? What happens to things like... Uh, like Actually, I, we are, we're out of time, but listen, right. I, I, I want to take exception to the last thing she said there. It, they said the local boards are going to make the decision based on their needs. No, they're not. They're going to make it based on the amount of money that they're going to get absolutely. from the government. And if absolutely. that money dries up, we're all in trouble. Yeah, you're uh, absolutely right. Lots more to talk about here in the days and weeks ahead, Andrea. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. You bet. Andrea Horvath, uh, uh, leader of the opposition, of course, and uh, as uh, the minister mentioned, the, uh, the the bill's before the House right now, so uh, lots more to talk about this before this thing gets uh, actually sent into law. Uh, and uh, maybe, maybe an opportunity for everybody to have some input. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Globe uh, had a story today that is starting to get some tongues wagging in uh, Ottawa. A piece of the Globe and Mail today says that Canada has threatened to not ratify the USMCA trade deal unless the U.S. ends its tariffs on steel and aluminum. Joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Hey, Marvin, how are you doing today? I am fine, thank you, Bill. Action-packed news day today, an awful lot going on. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, well, you can tell it's a busy news day when, uh, when talk about, you know, nixing a trade deal doesn't even make the headline. It's, it's kind of back <laughs> on the back burner. Uh, we, we, I don't know. This is, uh, do we even have any bargaining leverage here to talk about stuff like this? Well, you know, that's a good question, Bill. So let me maybe again give a little context here. Um, Canada has been trying to make it clear now for the better part of three months that any ratification of that new USMCA or CUSMA or MUSCA, however you want to call it, uh, would be very difficult uh, as long as those tariffs on steel and aluminum are, are still present. Um, so we have been trying to get the United States to remove them. I think if it was a quieter time in the United States, they probably would have been removed by now. But Mr. Trump is juggling a lot of heated swords at the moment. He's in North Korea, or excuse me, he's in Vietnam to talk to the North Korean leader. Of course, there's this testimony from Michael Cohen. And, and I think it's just not high on his priority list. Uh, we've made it very clear to the U.S. ambassador to Canada that this is a non-starter. In fact, this weekend, uh, uh, Transport Minister Mark Garneau was at a uh, meeting of governors in the United States, and he took the opportunity 13 times while, while he was on stage to talk about why these tariffs needed to be removed. Attending was also Larry Kudlow. Larry Kudlow is the Donald Trump's uh, economic advisor, uh, and he got up after Garneau and said, I'm hearing you, I'm hearing you, we're working, we're working, please, you know, 
give us a little more time, we're going to try to get rid of those. And last week it was uh, our ambassador who actually felt that the, there was a likely possibility that these tariffs would be gone within three weeks. Don't know what he was basing that on. And I think the idea is here just to not give up on the pressure, even if we're starting to get the right signals from American officials, we just need to keep reminding them that if you want this thing ratified in Canada, as long as there's tariffs present, this is a non-starter. And let me just give you one more wrinkle, Bill. You may know that last week I was in California. Yeah. I'd love to tell you I was having a lovely vacation. <laughs> I was in the California desert, and I had rain on three separate days and cold weather. It was not a happy time, so I read a lot of newspapers. And uh, while I was down there, Donald Trump has just received a report from our old friend Wilbur Ross at the Department of Commerce there, who says he, Donald Trump, might be able to impose tariffs on automobiles due to national security concerns. Now, we, when we signed USMCA, Canada had got an exemption. As long as we did certain things, there'd never be a tariff on our automobiles, Mexico in the same boat. But now that Trump's got this go-ahead to consider tariffs, we think they're going to be applied against Europeans. But until we get clarity from him, I think if I was, again, the various ministers involved, I would be reminding them not only do we need the steel and aluminum tariffs reversed, but there had better not be any tariffs on Canadian-made automobiles. Again, this will be dust in the wind otherwise. Well, and I understand, but I mean, this is like breaking news that you're just coming to us right now, because uh, here we are thinking maybe the end is near, and uh, it sounds as if, no, they're going to start piling on. Well, it's possible. Now, you know, all that Trump has been given from the Department of Commerce, they've done their investigation, and they think there is proof that there is a national security concern around automobiles. The examples cited in the report are all European or Korean or Japanese examples. There are no Canadian or Mexican examples in the report. That would lead me to think that we're not going to see tariffs, but Trump being as unpredictable as Trump is, and by the way, you might remember that when these tariffs were put on Canadian steel and Canadian aluminum, the argument was made, oh, it's just too hard to separate one country from the others, so it's an all-or-nothing proposition. Uh, I don't buy that for a moment, but that's what they said. Conceivably, one could make the same argument around the automobiles. So, you know, I, I would say if I was Ottawa, people in Ottawa, keep putting the pressure on, keep making our keys, keep reminding them that, uh, you, yes, you're having tough times getting this ratified in the U.S. Congress, but if you want your partners involved, you got to treat them better. I, I wouldn't give up on that message and rest on my laurels at this point. Let me go back to Kudlow's comments. So Larry Kudlow, of course, yep. uh, for those that don't know, is another one of the, the Fox News commentators that yep. uh, found, his, found himself a job in the White House. Uh, for the moment. For the moment, yeah. Who knows? I mean, yeah, you, you have a pretty short shelf life if you're on the, the, the Trump staff, I guess. But anyway, that aside, uh, I, I read his comments as well last week, Marvin, suggesting, hey, I'm working on this. Uh, what's he working on? I mean, to go back and, and put this in perspective, Trump imposed these in a very arbitrary fashion. I right. uh, just said, I'm going to do this. I mean, Wil Wilbur Ross whispered in his ear. He's actually, he was on his way out of a cabinet meeting, and Ross said, you know, you can do this. And bingo, he did it within like a few hours of this. Right. So there, there's nothing to work on here. That They can be dismissed as easily as they were imposed, can't they? Absolutely. So don't, don't get it in your head from Larry's comments that we need to have some kind of a vote in the Congress or vote in the Senate, because neither the Congress nor the Senate imposed these tariffs. It was a stroke of a pen. It was an executive order, is what they call it, by Donald Trump, and another stroke of a pen could remove them. Um, what I'm not clear from Larry's comments is if he's saying they would like to remove all steel and aluminum tariffs, meaning not just against Canada and Mexico, but against the world, because you'll remember that there are other 
allies to the United States who aren't happy that their steel is being taxed, say, for instance, Germany or France or Japan, who view themselves as, as friendly people, that you really are just after Chinese and Russian steel and Indian steel, so why don't you just make it for those countries? So he might be meaning that he's trying to get this sorted out on a more global basis. I would argue for Canada, you're absolutely right, a stroke of a pen this afternoon and this could all go away. There may be some other greater context in there. I don't know where Kudlow's coming from. Well, and part of that could well be pressure from uh, across the ocean. I mean, because you know that they're already having talks with the Chinese government about a possible trade deal. Uh, the Chinese don't look favorably upon Canada right now, so I, I, you don't know who's trying to do what to try to gain favor with somebody else. Oh no, exactly. And and by the way, that that Chinese uh, truce, if you will, between Canada or between the United States and China around uh, trade is supposed to expire next Friday, uh, March the eighth. Um, they have been talking about finding some way forward so that the tariffs don't keep getting piled on, but both sides have threatened to escalate the tariff war between the two nations if they can't find a way forward. So again, I suppose Kudlow is probably more frantic on that side of it than these tariffs. But I should also note, Bill, that he is getting lots of internal pressure. It's not just politicians. Now, this was a meeting of governors, and so Mark Garneau said to them, we'd appreciate your help keep making the case to your senators and what have you, and the governors generally nodded and agreed. But as even businesses, uh, uh, big companies, Ford Motor Company, General Motors, uh, Chrysler, each of them have put forward the idea that these tariffs are costing them roughly a billion dollars in additional costs that isn't justified. They're not getting anything back. It's just like a, another billion dollars of overhead that they'd rather not be spending on. So he, he's, uh, Trump and Kudlow and others are getting lots of internal feedback that these tariffs are not doing what they thought they were going to do, at least in the context of Canada and Mexico. Maybe there is some validity for them in the context of India, China, and Russia. Maybe they're doing the right things there. But in the other aspects of the way American business is conducted, it's not helping. So, you know, we again, it's the same course, but we've had this course, Bill, since September of last year. It, this is not a new course. It's a six-month-old course. And it does feel a bit like we're singing to deaf ears here, that uh, they're hearing our pain, but they're not acting on our pain. As always, when it comes to the Trump administration, actions will speak much louder than words. Well, and I think you mentioned this before. I mean, they seem to be swimming upstream. I mean, when it comes to the implementation of tariffs, just about every other economist and every other part of the, the G20 thinks tariffs are a dumb idea. Uh, there's only about five people in the states that seem to think it's a great idea, but they all seem to be working for Trump. Yes. Well, uh, one of the things about Mr. Trump I think is is interesting and and maybe peculiar is how much he likes this idea of describing something as a national emergency. So these tariffs were imposed for national security purposes. We have to protect our nation against these evil countries uh, putting their steel into our nation. And and you go, well, wait a minute, what, what security crisis are you talking about here? We don't know. This is the man who, what was it now, three weeks ago, said, uh, we have a national security crisis on immigration, so I'm invoking executive powers under national security to build that wall. And again, everyone is coming out and saying there is no national security crisis at the border. Uh, in fact, if there's a problem with illegal immigration, it's not at specifically the border is it things like airports where people are coming in illegally and if we're going to beef up security it's not a wall it might be more people with the tsa to to do the checking there uh... but he's he's discovered somehow that in the wisdom of the congress and the senate they have passed bills 
that really restrict the president's powers unless there is a national security concern, and he's exploiting that loophole. Again, the surprise is someone hasn't taken him to court and said, you need to prove to me that there is some national security crisis before you invoke this, because we're not seeing it your way. Well, that the first step may have been yesterday when the, the House of Representatives actually voted to, to nullify uh, his call for a national emergency on, on immigration. Now, it's still got to go to the Senate. It's, I don't know what's going to happen there, because Mitch McConnell's, uh, well, I don't want to get into how close he is to Donald Trump these days. No, but the but, Senate is controlled by the Republicans, yeah. whereas the House is controlled by the Democrats. So easy for the Democrats to fight against a Republican president. Will his own senators stab him in the back? And, and there's a reason to believe that for the last two years, Maybe they've held their nose. Maybe they don't like what Trump is doing, but they've supported him, held their nose, and supported him. I suspect they'll do it again. Well, a handful of them actually voted for the Democratic motion yesterday in the House, uh, and and the the margin of, of of majority in the in the Senate is not that big. It's I think if three or four senators, Republican senators, decided to side with that, it it would probably carry the day. But that's neither Heather nor Jan. He's still going to continue to do this sort of stuff, and right. and, and he pretty much defies people uh, and defies logic, I guess, when he does this. The other element, I know we're getting kind of tight for time here, and you and I have talked about this in the past, and this story in the Globe and Mail today just kind of reminded us about this. Uh, Canada can threaten all they want, uh, and, and some of those leaders, including Nancy Pelosi and some others, may say, go ahead and don't sign it, because I don't think we're going to sign it anyway. Yeah, so the Democrats, uh, but this is kind of an odd thing. The Democrats are saying they don't want to ratify it, but because they think some clauses in the agreement don't go far enough, not against Canada and the United States, but something that we lobbied for in the agreement, Bill, were some uh, issues around women's rights. You know, for instance, if you take a maternity leave, you're not going to lose your job, uh, some of the environmental things. But what uh, Trump and his people, Mr. Lighthizer and others, they sort of watered down those clauses and, and gave a lot of wiggle room to American businesses to maybe attempt to do the right thing but not be forced to do the right thing. And the Democrats have said, no, no, we like where that was going. We want to see those clauses beefed up. So, in, a, in, in fact, in a, maybe a, thinking about approving the USMCA, they want to make it tighter, actually closer to Canada's position. Um, it, it's going to be very interesting to watch. They have suggested at the moment any American hearings on the USMCA won't happen until at least June, in part because they've got these other issues around Trump uh, to, to fight first. Um, I think the question for Canada is, do we ratify this before the House breaks for the summer? Because, again, we've got this election in the fall. I think we want to get that done. I think we'd like to get a vote in favor of the agreement beforehand. Let's see if we can make those tariffs go away in the meantime. Is it realistic that the U.S. is even going to try to deal with this thing before they break for the summer? Well, yeah, again, you've raised a very good question. I think it's very much about what the Mueller investigation finds and what these hearings find. If there's a lot of fire, a lot of smoke and fire around the administration, around Russia, then no, I don't think they'll, they'll get to this at all. They'll be too busy, perhaps, trying to impeach a president. On the other hand, if it turns out Mueller stops short, if the other investigations stop short, they may begin to hold hearings. But remember, holding hearings is not ratifying it. I don't think any ratification vote in the states are going to happen until this fall. Marvin Ryder uh, at uh, the DeGroote School of Business. Glad you're out of the, uh, the rainy desert and back home here. Marvin, appreciate yeah. it. Ready for the snowfall. Yay! <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, thanks so much. We'll stay in touch as this uh, starts to unfold. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.